This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Daniel Henderson. And uh, we're out here to talk about film. We came to record this episode. I want to put this in the record of our show, in the minutes, the meeting minutes of every time we meet to record this show, that we actually were late to the record because somebody... Had to take a number two. Listen, time waits for no man, and I had to take a shit. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't sit here and talk about movies for two hours while I'm holding one in the chamber. (laughs) The chamber. Yeah, and she she texted Casey and I that was like, listen, can I have about five minutes? Um, Because I got to take a dump. Professional request. Absolutely. And and <laughs> listen, as as your co-host, I wouldn't want you to be sitting there holding in a dump for the next hour and a half. That would have been awful. So <laughs> I tried to listen, I try to plan it. I'm pretty regular. And I'm sure you're all wor- worried and wondering now, but I'm pretty regular. <laughs> no, this into is the, important the news for middle-aged people if you're regular, yes. trust me. Yes, I'm pretty regular. But what I don't uh. realize, and it happens every time we record. Normally, my regular dump times don't coincide with anything because yes. I'm just hanging out at home. So yes. I just go when I got to go. Yeah. And then I re- after the coffee kicks in, after breakfast is digested, <laughs> Yeah. it just so happens that on the one day a week that we record, it's at the same time. So usually it's like, you know, I'll shit. I all put it this way. I always shit before recording. Can I ask you... A question about your process real quick, because mm. I have been thinking about this. Do you, does your pet come into the bathroom with you when you're in there? 100%. So does mine. And I have tried to lock them out. Like I try to get Sophie out of here, but you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you're just like, I'm running in for a quick pee. I don't have time to close the door. My dog wants to lock eyes with me every time I'm on the toilet. Carrot sits in front of me like a fucking necromancer. (laughs) And I'm like, you have no part in this. Like, I know you want to be in here, but I cannot figure out why. Because there's nothing for you to do. There's nothing for you to see. It's not like I'm hovering above my fucking toilet with my feet on the bowl so he can see it dropping it. Like, there's nothing for you to do here. I know. And I'm like, I'm fascinated by, I mean, I'm generally fascinated by pet psychology because it's like, don't we all want to know what our pets are thinking of us always? Like, anytime I see an article online where it's like, scientists have discovered that pets, you know, have, you know, mental breakdowns when you're not with them for five <laughs> seconds or whatever. I get, like, so obsessed. I'm like, yes, my pet loves me so much. And now we have the science to prove it. 
But I'm I'm like curious about what this obsession is with them, like just wanting to hang out with us while we're on the toilet. And the, yeah. the whole like locking eyes thing is so strange because Sophie like wants to lock eyes with me when she's taking a dump too. Oh, see, Kara does not want that. He's got a, a litter robot is yeah. the name of the, the box that he has now. And he kind of goes into this chamber that's round. Yeah. And if he's looking out at me, he'll genuinely turn his head away. Like, I don't I don't want you to see this. Yeah. It's, I don't know. Maybe that's a, I don't know if cats and dogs do that differently. But I, I swear, I don't know what to do. Because I'm like, is she looking into my soul? Is it like a moment where she's like, listen, I'm in a vulnerable place. You're in a vulnerable place. Let's look at each other and just realize that we're family and we're here for each other. You know, like dumps are you, you, powerful. I don't know. You have, you've taken this to a naturally milly deep <laughs> place, which is very on brand where you're thinking about vulnerability and psychology. Your dog just wants a fucking treat. And my cat just wants me to get out of, to do something normal in my day. He's like, you're never in here. Why are you in here? Oh, for this. All right, bye. Because the rest of the day, he doesn't want to hang out with me. He does his own thing. Yeah. It's not like he's waiting for me to come out. Like dogs and cats are different in that way. Like he, he's not like waiting for me to come out and play with him or give him anything. He's just like, you know, he sleeps 18 hours a day. So yeah. I think the psychology of Carrot is that he's just like, this is abnormal. Why are you in this little room a yeah. couple times a day? On that note, I, I'm glad we spent some time discussing all of those things. Probably more than people wanted us to, but that's oh, why you got the fast forward button. Absolutely. <laughs> You're under well, no obligation to listen to this shit talk. So, And I think it also was, was ill-timed today because I had a lot going on this morning. So I um like I've I've had I had a visitor last week from Montreal. I'm scratching my invisible beard. Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> Yes, I had a visitor from Montreal. And so what that made me do was go into hyperdrive because I looked around my house and I was like, oh, I have been living like a fucking serial killer for the last year. So I'm looking at like, oh, I need to replace that shelf. I need this siding like this fucking trim was never replaced. I need to make this place look like a normal person lives here. And oh my then God. So I was doing all that. And then I had the pest control guy was supposed to come while he was here. I had to reschedule because I pulled up to my house one day and I was just looking. I kind of pulled off to the side where I don't normally park in my driveway. And I was looking at my butterfly bush and I was like, oh, my God, this butterfly bush has grown so much. It's had such a good season. There's actual butterflies around. There were also bees all over the place. So I looked a little closely and there were bees just like crawling into this little spot in the siding in front uh -huh. of the garage and I'm like I'm gonna be one of those fucking houses where they're gonna rip the wall off and be like you have 700 pounds of bees in here so yeah, I call like candy man yeah <laughs> I open my mouth to eat and just bees just fly out <laughs> scary <laughs> I go and get the mail and I'm just like covered in bees walking like one of those stuntmen from the 80s <laughs> They started out going into a tiny hole and look what happened now. Now they took over her fucking life. <laughs> so I, I had, so the pest control guy was rescheduled to come today and he showed up a little early. He showed up a couple hours early, which I'm grateful for, but was also not prepared for. So I went out and showed him and I was like, oh, do you need me to show you where the bees are? And he's like, oh, no, I can see him from here. And I'm like, great. That's a good sign. Oh, and then hell. when he left, 
he sent me a text and he was like, all right, um, you should be all set. You might see some activity for the next couple of weeks and then you can plug the hole up. Um, But there were 300 yellow jackets in there. (gasps) And I was like, sir, what? He's like, yeah, there were 300, about 300 yellow jackets in there. So they weren't actual bees. They were actually yellow jackets. Yeah. Wow. That's scary. Yeah. Wasp factory. Yellow, Yellow jackets are wasps, right? I think so. See, this is why I can't be doing this kind of work because I'm like, they're bees. And he's like, they are not. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I always I I knew there was a distinction between like the nice bumblebees or the honeybees that, you know, we need to actually save or something because they're important. Uh, They help the food supply. But then there's like the actual ones that will sting and kill you. Oh, wasps are useless. Wasps are, are I, I, and look, if you're a scientist or you're someone who like works at a pet sanctuary and you know a lot about wasps or something, feel free to tell me. But I feel like they are useless in the food chain. A wasp and a, and a according to Casey, a wasp and a yellow jacket are the same thing. Oh, well, then I had 300 wasps in my goddamn wall of my garage. So w- did he... Uh, did the pest control dude tell you like what was in there? Why were they? Yeah. What were they drawn to? He's like, oh, they might have built a little hive in there. Like they might have, because he's been treating. I mean, he treats the house every month, so mm-hmm. he's like, they. It's just recent. Like it's just within the last couple of weeks that this has happened. Oh, I see. And because he treats the house all the time, and they they actually, I have had a lot of wasp activity around the house, and last year. I went out of my front door one day and my sister-in-law came over and I kind of went out to greet her and she kind of stopped in her tracks and she was like, "Uh, is there another way into your house? I was like, why? And she pointed up to this tree right near the front door and I swear to God, there was a wasp, a gray withered wasp's nest that looked like a fucking witch's hat. It was huge and it was not there two days ago. Like when I went outside, (laughs) like they built these things so quickly. So he's like, oh, you know, they're pretty active, but... Again, I think useless unless they kill, I don't know, like a certain type of fucking lanternfly or something. I don't know. Let's get the wasps on the lanternfly situation. They got nothing <laughs> else to do. Why are we killing them? Get some other fucking animal out there. We need to give be training a- these wasps to do things. Hell yeah. To- give it a fucking natural fucking enemy. Yeah. Prove their worth type of thing. I Let me tell you, when I was a kid, like, so, you know, I kind I grew up in the South, obviously, like either between suburban Atlanta and rural South Carolina. And when I was a little kid in the 80s, you know, this was before, I'll say this before I say this, now you're not allowed to go on the side of the road and pick wildflowers. It's kind of like not (laughs) the thing. Like there's always signs now that says, don't pick these wildflowers. This is a, you know, a, a a, a habitat for, you know, blah, blah, blah. But in the 80s, nobody gave a shit about fuck. I mean, people were still littering, so it yeah. doesn't even really matter. So we my didn't mom have any influencers in the 80s. There oh, were no yeah. influencers there... like, take a picture of me in this beautiful side of the road field. And then State of George is like, you just ruined the fucking habitat of 700 <laughs> insects. Yeah. The, there was no scolding about any of this stuff the way there no. is now. But so my mom. And my, my sister and I, when I was, I mean, I must have been probably like eight or nine years old. So my sister was really little. We used to go on the side of the road and pick wildflowers. Like we used to just, you know, pull over and, yeah. you know, clip little things and, you know, put them in jars and shit. So I remember we were doing that and 
I, for some reason, was like in the tall grasses and um, I was feeling these like pains in my legs. Oh, no. Underneath my sock. Uh Uh-uh. And I was probably wearing one of those scrunchy white socks like Ewan McGregor wears in Shallow Grave. Ah! So, you know, somehow this occurred. But anyway, I was feeling these like pinches in my sock and I was like, fuck, that hurts. And I opened up, you know, I, I basically pulled the sock away from my skin and a bunch of wasps and yellow jackets, what? whatever you want to call them, came out. <laughs> they were going to fucking town on your ankles? Oh, yeah. And then when I, I was like, so of course I flipped out. My mom was like, oh my God. And I was like, I can't walk. I can't walk. So my mom, <laughs> you know, carried me to the car. We went home and then took my socks off and there was just bites all around my ankles. Oh my God. Dude, and it was like, it was so painful. It was so painful. And I will... N- so ever since then, I was like, I don't fuck with those things. No. Nope. I don't care if they're the greatest animals on the planet. They <laughs> really <laughs> fucked me up when I was eight or nine. And I don't... So so the idea that you have had 300 of them in your <laughs> wall scares the shit out of me. Oh, God. I know. And it's like, I ha- I'm going to have to... I have to have the house recited like eventually. <gasps> and, yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be, it's just going to be a tremendous amount of money because between the squirrels and the fucking wasps and the, like they're all, everything's trying to get into this house. Everything is like, Oh, they still see a barn. And I'm like, this is not no longer a barn. It's a home. It has been a home for like a century. Yeah. But animals are still trying to get in here. So the way that they can kind of burrow and burrow into wood and like dig holes, like this will probably happen again. I got to be yeah. on the lookout for wasps now. I'm telling you, like, that's probably why when when you're in the country, you see houses that look like the houses from Night of the Living Dead when they've just got boards <laughs> nailed to every open <laughs> hole. Dude, it's no joke. I have a couple of those boards up. Yeah. I have a couple we of those boards up high under the soffits, under the eaves, because I'm like, any hole that you see, I told, again, pest control company, like any fucking hole that you see, you got to plug it up because I got squirrels coming in here and fucking yeah. parkouring into my house through a broken ceiling tile. Oh, yeah. You should see, like, below the deck in the backyard at this house, like, it's basically open because it goes to the crawl space or whatever. And right. so I guess over the years, people were like, fuck it, we're putting, like, wood lattice, you know, around the bottom so that there's no animals that, like, get under there. And there's, like, decades upon decades of, like, nails, of, like, Oof. screws, just, like, people, like, slamming metal things into the so that the lattice stays up because there's fucking like the cats in this neighborhood are crazy there's so (laughs) many feral cats there's tons of like squirrels possums raccoons so i mean i'm like and they gotta do something they yeah. lay in wait and they they sit there and they're like one day that fucking shit's gonna fall down and we're gonna go yep. in there and make a colony and we can't wait it's like the tale they pass down as lore from their to their own kittens. Like, <laughs> we used to be able to go under there and fuck. And one day, if you keep watching, you'll be able to go under there and fuck. And invite your little fucking squirrel friends for a goddamn party. They always bring food. They always got nuts hiding somewhere. Bring your fucking possum friends to do that one trick where they pretend they're dead. You can all crack up. <laughs> One of, one of the grandpas writes a book that's like the day 
the sighting was changed <laughs> by Roscoe T. Squirrel. <laughs> like what, what you should do is no matter how, I don't know how you're going to do it. Any way you find, find a friend who knows how to burrow because they will dig down beneath that fucking lattice. <laughs> All you need is like three or four feet. And then it's like a heist movie. <laughs> like, can we burrow deep enough to get under the fucking lattice? <laughs> and the yeah. granddad's like, there's gold under there. Like some old, like, there's a, there was a curse put on us by these humans, but. Yeah. My great great grandpappy left a a bucket full of gold under there. Whoever the um, Jim Belushi guy in the squirrel tunneling outfit is like got his he's got his like Chicago Cubs fucking starter jacket on with a pen in his mouth. He's like, we're not gonna be able to to burrow down this. You're gonna need at least fifty more pounds of dynamite. We're never gonna get beyond the lattice. And James Caan squirrels like make it happen anyway. Um, and then there's a there's the Emmett Otter. <laughs> Emmett Otter shows up, and he's like, I don't know if, I, if you can dig down and make the hole, but I can cover it up. I'm an otter. I can fucking slap those sticks into place and cover the shit up and cover your trail. <laughs> Sing you a song while I'm doing it. Oh Damn. god. But okay, but, yeah. so let me. Can I ask you now? Yeah. Did your guest from Montreal get stung by any of these wasps? No. Okay. Because <laughs> we didn't go out through the garage ever. Ooh. <laughs> and they that didn't... sounds salacious. We didn't even go outside. <laughs> no, we, we went outside. We didn't go out through the garage. I was like, oh, oh we have to go out through this other door because there's things over there that might might sting you. And I don't know what to do with a Canadian that gets stung by a wasp. <laughs> Like, oh, the healthcare system here is so much different. Yeah. I don't know what to do with you if you get stung by a wasp and you're from Canada. We're just going to have probably... to take you to an urgent care and you're going to have to pay $500. Exactly. <laughs> $500 to your, your non-existent travel insurance because you need it in America. You need it in uh. America. So, yeah, we didn't have any. Thankfully, no. Ins- and they hadn't gotten into the house at all, which is oh, also good. wild. Because I thought for sure if they breached the first perimeter, they were going to get into the house. But <laughs> no. They weren't even hanging out in the garage. I was like, all right, you're strictly in the walls. You're strictly wall wasps. Yeah. But I I just knew it. I'm like, there's going to be, I saw a few of them and I'm like, there's going to be like a 700 pound framework in here. And the next thing you know, it's like, oh, that's what was holding up your house the whole time is these fucking family of fucking yellow jackets. Yeah. It's like that, that one article that went back and forth between multiple family members of mine for weeks, which was that... <laughs> Was it those birds that put those acorns in those yes! in that people's wall? Yeah. And then they just ah. cut the wall open and just like fucking 9,000 pounds of acorns come out. And you're just like, holy shit. Oh, God. I, and I saw there was another article where there was like a woodpecker who brought a bunch of nuts and acorns and shit to a um, like a, a signaling device like a dish or something. On, and they're like, the dish isn't working. We don't know why the signal isn't working. And they opened it up and like hundreds of pounds of sh- nuts just fell out of the fucking thing. It was like raining acorns. It was hilarious. I'm like, yeah, animals are fucking smart. They're like, we don't like all this Wi-Fi signals buzzing around. Our ears hurt. Yeah. Yeah. No, I see there's something about, you know, 
the idea of buying an older house, and especially in the country and like a place that has a lot of woods and stuff. I mean, I think about that and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I'm renting one of those houses right now. And I feel like maybe at some point I'll, I'll buy one of my own, but then you're just like, oh yeah, you don't know what the fuck is going on in those guts. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Let me tell you this. I will never do this again. I will never do this again. It'll be turnkey only from now on. But you also, if you are going to do this, you should be a millionaire because the problems that arise are frequent and incredibly expensive. It's never just been like, oh, a squirrel just took a nibble out of a a piece of siding, but you can replace it. Like, let's go to Michael's and get some wood glue and you'll be fine. It's always (laughs) like, oh, a squirrel set up a fucking disco in your attic with 17 other squirrels. So you've got food rotting up there and like things are dying up there and they're fucking bare knuckle boxing each other up there. It's never just a simple (laughs) fix. I've never had anything in this house happen. And it's just like, oh yeah, that'll be like 10 bucks. Yeah, I know. I know. I feel like this podcast is like a historical document of just how crazy your your home buying experience has been. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) From top to fucking bottom. But... I've I now only live on one level of the house because I'm going to try to save some money this winter on my heating expenses. And also downstairs is renovated, but upstairs is not. So it's like, oh, oh downstairs looks like a normal home. Upstairs looks like a fucking asylum. <laughs> and I'm not buying any furniture until I get it renovated. I'm like, I'm not putting couches and chairs and shit in here just to have to move them in a yeah. few months or a couple of years or whatever. So... It's just sparse and rickety upstairs. And I ain't doing it anymore. I can't live in this house in a sparse, rickety way. Yeah. So, well, I, ain't doing I mean, it. that's, I think that's pretty common. I have some friends that also are like that. They bought a, an older house and they pretty much tricked out the, the bottom floor. And then the upstairs is like, I don't know what's up there. It's probably like haunted. <laughs> we'll get to it someday. But right now, as long as we can live and function in the bottom part, we're cool. Completely. I'll get to the the bones and the ghosts that are clearly here another yeah. time. I know. I mean, there's probably like Victorian children up there who were who were put there by their mother <laughs> because <laughs> the mother didn't want anybody to know they existed so she could get an inheritance. I mean, it's like fucking whatever, right? Also, I would be excited if some of the ghosts were black people because I guarantee <laughs> they had black people work in this goddamn farm. Yeah. They probably imported them for that reason. So I'd be mm. psyched if it was just like, girl, what are you doing? I'd be like, oh my God, you're a ghost, <laughs> but you're so fucking chill. Yeah. It'd be great. Uh, be like visiting my great grandpa or something. Also, I can't fuck with a little kid ghost. That creeps me out. <laughs> Damn. I don't care if they're floating. I don't care if they're intact. I don't, I, I cannot deal with a little kid ghost because there's always a tragic story behind it. Like tuberculosis or fucking a wheat yeah. thresher or something. Yeah. I don't think I would be afraid. I've never seen a little kid ghost. I don't think I would be afraid. I say that now, but things could change. So. I'm going to knock wood and light candles and pray that you don't see a little kid ghost anytime (laughs) soon. But if you do, I hope it's a little kid ghost from like 70s Atlanta who's like popping and locking. (laughs) (laughs) Or like a hippie ghost. Like a little hippie 70s ghost. If it's going to be a little kid, that's what my hope is for you. Well, listen, I love hearing house updates. I hate 
that they're always negative, <laughs> theoretically. But I'm glad you at least, you know, I'm glad you at least kind of figured out the problem. I'm glad you had a house guest, just saying. Yes. My first ever house guest. It was kind of fun. It was very fun. Well, cool. I'm happy to hear it. But it was was definitely a lot of prep because I looked around and I'm like, oh, I can live with wires hanging out of the ceiling. I don't think that anyone wants to walk into a house that looks like that. And what's weird, too, is, like, I don't think anyone would judge me. Like, all my friends, everyone close to me knows this nightmare I live in. But um, I don't know. I just, I I like being a good host. I like mm. people to come in and just feel comfortable. And I I know you know that because you're, you you're the best host of all time. Like, oh, well, thanks very much. You're like, here's nine pillows. You might only need one, but you got nine. Here's 14 blankets. That's you have your right. own bathroom. Mm-hmm. And, you're, and here's the thing. You have your own bathroom and it's cleared out so you could put your shit somewhere. I've stayed with lots of people who are like, you'll have your own bathroom. And then I walk in and I'm like, why are there mops in the fucking shower? <laughs> you didn't clean any of this out for me. Is this really a bathroom I can use? Oh, yeah. No, there's nothing on the counters and shit like this. It's for you. It's for you to put your little lotions and potions. And plus, you know, like, I don't go into that bathroom. I have yeah. my own bathroom that my dog stares at me in. So I'm like, I don't need this one. So why am I putting anything in there? <laughs> Full you know I mean? circle conversation. We are pros. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Look, this is a recurring theme, a pod favorite, something that was created, named, conceived by Daniel Henderson. Tell the folks what the theme is this week. Our theme this week is, baby girl, what is you doing? (laughs) And... What would you say is the gist of the theme, Danielle? The gist of the theme is just watching women in particular either modifying their life to accommodate a man or just making decisions that will negatively impact them, but they just keep going for the sake of the story. (laughs) That is an absolute perfect way to put it. These movies this week... (laughs) I remember when we were talking this out and we were like, in what world are we putting these two movies together? Truly a psychotic mix this week. I, um, it had been a minute since I saw your film, by the way. Um, I did log it on Letterboxd the last time that I saw it and gave it a very high rating. This movie still hits. Oh, it holds up. Um, definitely holds up. And then my movie is way different. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Your movie I have not seen in ages, like decades. Me too. And from start to finish, the whole movie is the pantheon of Baby Girl, What Is You Doing? It's like 
the number one with with a bullet. Like it's just it could not be more baby girl. What is you doing for every character yeah. in the fucking movie? And and just to so for people who have not seen it yet and want to, so my movie was is is nowhere on the internet pretty mm. much except for the internet archive. Which if you want to go there, that's where it is to see it. People who have already seen it probably figure that out. I'm actually so puzzled as to why it's unavailable. I mean, yeah. To to me, it's such a banger that I'm like, I can't believe that the world is not experiencing this movie in the way that they want to at, at any hour of the day. Like it should be online. It should be absolutely easier it, to see. And it was for a minute. They brought it back for the Criterion Collection. And I'm not sure. I think it was during that month they did the Jennifer Jason Lee pictures and they were looking at like femme fatales or something like that. Um, yeah. So, but it was erotic only on Criterion. Yeah, yeah, erotic thrillers. But it was only on Criterion for a month. I know. Yeah, I just, I, I just wrote about this in one of my old Substacks about the idea of like uh, digital licensing. Yeah. Because that's the thing about a movie like Poison Ivy is that it was only on Criterion for like a month, and Criterion, I think, actually does a pretty good job of of telling people w- in the app when things are about to expire. Right. But like, there is no watch you can set any of this to. So, you know, you realize, oh, this movie is only up for a month. If you don't have your calendar set to watch it, then you're going to miss it. And then that's it. There's no way to get it unless you buy it on DVD or go to a video store, which there are no video stores. So it's, it's very... It, it's like one. It's like near dark. Same thing that yeah. happened with near dark when we try to play that, uh, or um, when we try to talk about that on the podcast. So it's a totally. bummer, but I'm glad it's up in some form. Um, Same, because it's wild. I think I'm going first, right? Yeah. Oh my god, we're gonna talk about this right now. So my movie for the theme, baby girl, what is you doing? Is from 1992. It was written by Melissa Goddard, Andy Rubin, Cat Shea, directed by Cat Shea, and it's called Poison Ivy. We can all be together now. We can all be a family. Poison Ivy. <laughs> oh my God, I was going to sing that too. That's such a good song. Oh, really. how could you not sing it? What a great song. First thing that comes to mind for me, but... Me too. And also Poison Ivy from The Cramps. I have to... That's the... Yes. Poison Ivy is such a great name for for a lady, a, a villain lady, right? Because isn't there a Batman? There's a There's Batman. There's a Batman. Poison yeah, Ivy. I think yeah. Uma Thurman was, right? Yeah. Ooh. Okay, so... Kat Shea, the director of this film, she is a legend. She got her start. <laughs> she got her start in acting, but then moved to writing and directing films for guess who? Roger fucking Corman? Duh. Yes. <laughs> All exploitation roads lead to Roger Corman. I truly um, did not even know that. I didn't even look it up. I just guessed. Oh, oh I knew you would get it right. We have, we, this is a familiar, a familiar scene. <laughs> it's like, he is literally responsible for so many people's careers. Um, <laughs> so Kat Shea and her husband at the time, Andy Rubin, you know, they started writing scripts for Roger. Then eventually Kat 
was able to make her feature-length debut, which was called Stripped to Kill from 1987. It stars Greg Evigan from My Two Dads, the, no. the TV show My Two Dads. Yes, ma'am. Oh, you don't have to tell me who Greg Evigan is. <laughs> I know. Uh, that little beard and that, his little yeah. pompadour. The not Paul Reiser dad. <laughs> The hot dad. Let's just say the, it. The hot, hot dad. Let's just say the hot, the hot dad that looks like he was in Playgirl magazine. Um, Strip to Kill is unreal, by the way. I don't know if anybody has seen it. Essentially, Kay Lenz, the actress Kay Lenz, goes undercover as a stripper. So, hello. Oh my gosh. It's, it's very sexy. But Kat also directed The Rage, Carrie oh. 2, oh. from 1999, which was the sequel to Carrie, obviously, the De Palma movie, Carrie. Um, I've never seen it, but I, I heard it's actually pretty good. So really? I'm, I'm actually um, I'm actually uh, considering watching it. So we'll see. But um, all right, let me do a one-sentence synopsis of Poison Ivy. A high school misfit befriends a mysterious and sexy classmate who basically ends up fatal attractioning her entire family. <laughs> Solid. Yes. The beats of this movie kind of go like this. There's a high school misfit, the one I just spoke about. Her name is Sylvie Cooper. She is played by the sardonic, queer, 90s alternative queen of all of our hearts, Sarah Gilbert. So very early in this movie, she's watching this blonde sort of rock and roll bombshell on a swing outside of their school and is like, who is she? Who is she? She wants to befriend her. She doesn't actually know her name, but then just starts calling her Ivy based on this sort of trashy leg tattoo that that she has on, you know, like, it's like, I think at some point she reveals that it's a stick-on tattoo, but then she actually gets it at some point. But Ivy is played by Drew Barrymore. I know she's been in the news lately. I know that at some point she was going to be a scab during the writer's strike. She may have changed her mind about that. I don't know what state it's in right now. But I am aware of the fact that she is causing a stink. You don't have to tell either of us or Danielle's grandmother, for that matter. (laughs) But Drew Barrymore, whom at the time of this movie was in her, you know, bad girl phase, according to the press, where she basically ditched her whole child star thing and she was going out a lot. She was engaged. I completely forgot about this. She At the time of this movie, she was engaged to Jamie Walters yep. from The Heights. That show, The Heights. <laughs> <laughs> and that sentence could have gone anywhere because she was engaged to Eric from Holes. She was engaged to Tom Green. She married Tom Green. Like She was with Fab from The Strokes. I mean, she's yeah. had a lot of like famous boyfriends. But The Heights was this, wasn't it like a 90210 spinoff show? Yes. Oh, God, Jamie Walters had that terrible fucking song. How do you talk to an angel? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. There's this amazing, you know, Ben Stiller had the Ben Stiller show for a very, very brief period of time. It was like a sketch comedy show. There's this incredible fucking parody 
of the Heights and that song in the Ben Stiller show skit. God, it's so fucking funny. But it was wild because I completely forgot they were together. And then I went and looked up a bunch of stuff about them because I was like, wow. And it was like when they were together, it was like this huge scandal because she she and... And Jamie basically were in Interview Magazine together, and, like, Bruce Weber took all these photos of them, and she was completely naked, even though mm-hmm. you couldn't see her bits. Like, her, she wasn't showing, like, full bush or anything. But she was just, like, you know, her naked body was in the, was in the magazine. And apparently that was such a huge scandal. Oh, yeah, because she was, like, a child star. And people yeah. wanted to keep her in that little child star role. yeah. And, and she'd already been to rehab and she'd had this horrible life. And, yeah. you know, yeah, people were, were ruthless to her. Yeah. And, like, I looked back on the photos now and I was just like, they're very kind of tastefully done. I don't understand why everybody was so shocked. But then again, yeah, that's just my brain in the modern era looking back at this tasteful photo shoot being like, what's the big deal? <laughs> but so the thing was is that when this movie came out, when Poison Ivy came out, she... All of a sudden, it was like, she's a sexy Lolita. Let's put her in every sexy Lolita movie we're writing in Hollywood. I have to say, you know, like like you said, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. Drew fucking nails this character. She nails Ivy. She's just like this quintessential early 90s sunset strip adjacent kind of bad girl you know, with, like, the bleach blonde hair and the dark lipstick. I mean, I was like, yes, this is her. This is, like, this whole character. Totally. Yeah, she did a great um, job. Yeah, she did an amazing job, by the way. So he, so the thing is, is that Sylvie, right, the Sarah Gilbert character, we find out she comes from a very wealthy family. Her dad is the general manager of this local L.A. TV station. And he's kind of, he kind of serves as this, like, end of broadcast, like, Andy Rooney, the, you know, the, like, I got opinions guy that comes on at the end. (laughs) Which is so weird. The general manager of the station comes on, it's like, kids suck, everybody, (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) It's 10 p.m. Do you care where your children are? They're the fucking worst. Uh, that's some fucking boomer old man shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> but so the father in the movie is played by Tom Skerritt. Oh, my God. And I just have to say, watching this again, I actually think he's a perfect choice for this role because this is no slight to you, Mr. Skerritt, but he's not like too hot. Yes. Right? He's very dead. He's very dead. Yes. That is exactly what I was about to say. He looks like someone's dad. He looks like someone's dad. Which what is what makes everything that happens after that even more fucked up to completely. me. Completely. Oh, completely. You and know? This this role, Tom Skerritt is the most baby girl what does you do in part of this movie to me. <laughs> every goddamn thing he says, everything that comes out of his mouth, every, I'm like, what are you doing, sir? Yes. And he, the way that he spins out over the course of this film is so disturbing. You're like, this dad is losing his shit by the minute. And it's all because of this hot, 
teenage girl that's in his house. It's just is so disturbing. Truly. So meanwhile, Sylvie's mother, who is played by Cheryl Ladd, she is apparently dying of emphysema at 38. Which, when there's a there's a part where they show her old car, which is like this old Corvette, and Sarah Gilbert is, you know, Sylvie's cleaning up her mom's old car, and she vacuums out so many goddamn butts. And I'm like, how much did this woman smoke to have emphysema at 38? Yeah. She and she was smoking at certain parts in the movie, and you're like, baby girl, what is you doing there? What is you doing? But it's it's a it's a real tough break for this character, but is also an amazing setup for all kinds of shit, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> just, yes. Like, is there anything more dramatic than like Cheryl, beautiful Cheryl Ladd, like holding up a fucking face mask and being like, I can't breathe. Like, you know, it's like so <laughs> in the context of like a thriller, that is such an amazing fucking thing. It's just so dr- so high drama, right? Her just walking around in those like floaty nightgown. <laughs> I'm like, baby girl, what is you doing? Get in bed. You got emphysema. And the fucking curtains are blowing in like the sex scene from Top Gun and shit. And you're just like, <laughs> wow. There's like a, a, a grand piano in there. It is she's, dramatic. She's, she's begging for pills. It's like, yes. what more can we give this woman? God damn. God. So... Sylvie is essentially the narrator of this film, right? And she's always kind of describing Ivy, you know, and just kind of who she is. Because at the core of this, like, Sylvie is a high school girl. She is lonely. She's probably sheltered a bit because of her rich family. She's probably a lesbian. That's kind of what she's going through in the film. She kind of thinks about that kind of stuff from time to time. And she's drawn to Ivy because Ivy is obviously the complete opposite of what she knows. She's freewheeling and beautiful and confident. And she seems like she's from, you know, this mysterious place, you know, that mm-hmm. is like this kind of other side of the tracks type of place. That was also and, interesting to me because she goes into her story like she doesn't know much about Ivy, but she's like finds out that, oh, she's a scholarship kid and she lives with her aunt because her parents are dead or in jail or something. Yeah. And so she doesn't know much about her, but she has this kind of this backstory that could be completely made up. Yeah. Like, we don't know. We don't know. But she they don't challenge it at all in the film. So we kind of feel like, oh, this is her lot in life. And yeah. meanwhile, Sylvie's like, I'm going to shave the eye of Horus into my fucking head and tell my parents that I'm going bald. Yeah, I mean, Sylvie <laughs> at one point tells Ivy that she's half black. Oh, my God. Okay. I am so glad you fucking bought that up. Because that line, she they're just walking and she goes, yeah, my real dad's black. You can tell by my hair. And I'm like, ma'am, what? And then later <laughs> on, it comes, turns out that's absolutely a lie. She's just trying yes. to make herself seem cool. And also, I'm looking at Sarah Gilbert and I'm like, there's no part of you that seems black. What are you talking about? <laughs> You're good. You're like no biracial person I've ever seen because you are that white. You are so white. And you weirdly look a lot like Tom Skerritt. Totally. Totally. (laughs) But I also think that moment illustrates sort of like what 90s teenagers wanted. They wanted to be interracial and like, you know, cool and, you know, non-establishment. And 
they're just, they wanted to be other people. The richer they were, they wanted to be something else a lot of times. And so there were some moments like that in the movie that I was like, that is so weird. But then I started thinking about it. I'm like, for that character, for that Mm -hmm. character, her trying to pull a lie like that would have probably happened if that was a real real teenager at that time, right? No, that totally tracks. Totally tracks. Well, and, and so what ends up happening is they become... BFFs because they're pretty much unliked by everybody in school. It's very foot cigarettes, this friendship. <laughs> Another deep cut from one of our old episodes. Oh, it's probably the second or third episode is that they're probably smoking cigarettes out of each other's feet. They've got that kind of friendship. At they wh- sleep next to each other. Like, oh, yeah. They just- in the same, they sleep next to each other holding each other. You know, they're very, very physically close. Which is interesting because Sylvie is kind of questioning her sexuality. At Mm -hmm. one point, Sylvie says this line. She says, I never knew anybody who looked that much like a slut. Which. And she says it as a compliment. Right. And I was thinking, (laughs) ooh, that's bad. But then I was like, honestly, honestly, as a nerd... Oh, is is likely in the 90s probably something I would have admired in a girl at Absolutely. that age. Like a, as like a fucking nerd wearing umbros and like triple <laughs> XL Soundgarden ah. t-shirts. I would have looked at somebody who was that hot and that kind of put together in a very adult way and thought, damn, I wish I was her. Completely. She's, she looks like a slut. I wish I could look like a slut. You know? That was an incredible line in this movie. Yeah. So... All right, very quickly, Ivy is winning over everyone in this family, even the dog, the dog that hates everyone. This fucking rich L.A. family decides to take her in to their home. She's sleeping in Sylvie's room. Sylvie is buying her shoes and clothes. The mom, who is walking around with an oxygen tank at all times, is giving clothes to Ivy, giving her her old wardrobe. It's wild. And I don't really have to tell you much about what happens next. I mean, I'm not going to give away endings, obviously, but, like, the bottom line is Tom Skerritt is definitely having a midlife crisis. He is so sexually frustrated because, like I said, he's got this beautiful, gorgeous wife who is now bedridden, right? He's middle-aged. He also has this Aerosmith video vixen girl living in his house, openly flirting with him, by the way. And he's so frustrated that he's like punching the elevator buttons in the elevator at work until his fist bleeds. (laughs) And I mean, it is like, and and Tom Skerritt being the dad looking dude that he is, this hit so hard for me. I was like, holy fucking shit. This guy's going to explode. I will say, I want to talk about, like, one thing, and I hope this doesn't give it away. It won't, but I'm just saying. So, her dad is hosting a party one evening, and Ivy figures out a way to get Sylvie out of the house under the guise of her, like, volunteering with some youth, some kids. So, Ivy's at the party alone without her friend. She puts on the mom's, like, sexy party dress, and she's playing waitress at this party. And then after the party is over, this is when shit 
goes absolutely wild for the rest of this film. So here's what happens after this party. The mom walks in on the dad and Ivy. They're they're sexily dancing to stock erotic thriller music. <laughs> okay. She freaks the fuck out, of course, runs back to bed. Then Ivy and the dad go in, and, like, Ivy is sitting on the edge of her bed, this woman's bed, this sick woman's bed, and then she starts stroking the dad's hair when he's, like, on the floor, and then they essentially start having sex on the foot of the bed of the mother who has passed out because she's taken some pills. I'm like, is this the most baby girl, what is you doing moment? Oh, the whole lead up to that scene, because I, I, that translated to me as Ivy drugged her because she gives her a glass of champagne and the That's dad right. is sober. So she brings in these two glasses and she's like, oh, you can't drink Tom Skerritt, but you can have one. And mom takes, takes the drink and then within seconds passes the fuck out. Yeah. Within, and I'm like, oh, she drugged her. Baby girl, what is you doing? Why are you yeah, drugging this woman who's already sick? You're right about that because I just assumed that she was on so many pain pills that she just was like, I'm passed out. I'm pissed, but I'm passing out. I, I It totally tracks that she drugged her, by the way, because you're right. It was literally like she, the mom's like, I cannot believe this happened. And then she laid down in the bed and was like, oh, <laughs> honk shoe, honk shoe. Meanwhile, <laughs> Tom Skerritt's like, perfect opportunity for me to perform statutory rape in the form of cunnilingus. Oh my God, it is. <laughs> He's like, let me go down on this teenage girl. And like, I don't want to like press this too hard because it really truly creeps me the fuck out. But his, his faces during the scene is like the face of a middle-aged man that hasn't seen a vagina in 20 years. And he's like, in his own moment, he's fucking like, totally lose like his eyes pretty much pop out of his skull <laughs> and i'm just like this is so uncomfortable like the entire so scene is so uncomfortable oh it doesn't top the scene that comes later where they're like fucking standing up and he's fully naked i can't i cannot with that <laughs> i this shit was so so uncomfortable. I mean, it was so disturbing. The thing that is very, very bizarre about about all this is that so you're under the impression that Ivy is a teenager, right? That she's in high school, but also you don't know anything about her, right? Mm -hmm. You don't know how old she is, you don't know where she comes from. So it's this very like weird feeling of like. She looks like she's 35 because she's traipsing around this cocktail party in, you know, a floor-length gown. But then, you know, you realize that she's at this high school with Sarah Gilbert. And then you're just like, holy shit, like, this is so wild. Like, the whole thing is wild to me, and it makes me very uncomfortable. Look, I've never even met my dad, and I watched this scene, this stand-up fucking scene, and I was like, Dad... What are you doing? Like, it, felt, it hit me in my heart so much that I'm like, I felt like I was watching my own dad doing it. And I'm like, this is not cool. This is not okay. Yeah, th- it really makes you 
hate your parents or something. I <laughs> just like want to want to be nowhere near your parents while watching this movie. I mean, it's it's so uncomfortable. But so here's the thing. Obviously, you know what the rest of this movie might be. If you've seen it, you definitely know what happens. All I'm saying is that this is the second time that I've seen this film. And I feel like, again, a lot of things resonated with me more now than the last time I saw it. Obviously, just from the adult's perspective, I was like, oh my God, this is so insane. Because I remember when this movie actually came out. I mean, I was about to start high school, I think. And I th- I actually thought it was a straight up porno. Like, I didn't know. I had no idea. <laughs> And then also in the 90s, I was kind of generally wary of any movie that showed kids my age who were alternative because I was just Mm -hmm. always like, Hollywood is so corny about that. They never get it right. I'm telling you right now, I looked back on this film when I just did this rewatch and they fucking nailed that shit. (laughs) Like, I was like... Down to the clothes, smoking, the, the side of the head, shaving. You know, everyone's wearing big coats with boots. And then the, the thing that really hit me is this kind of, like, flippant way of discussing suicide. Yes. That seemed like a very teenager 90s thing. Absolutely. And just, like, everything. The bad tattoos, the yin-yang t-shirts and shit. I mean, it just really felt authentically 90s to me now that I watched it as an adult. Completely. Yeah, when I first watched it, I I had the same feelings of like, they never get it right. They never get it right. But then I looked at it this time and I'm like, "Mm, yeah, I knew that girl. Oh, (laughs) yeah. There are parts of me that was that girl. (laughs) Yeah. No, I had a friend who in high school who essentially was the Sarah Gilbert character through and through. Same kind of, vibe, the way they talked, the look, everything. And I was like, damn, they really fucking nailed this shit. (laughs) And I have to say, it just was like, it's such an enjoyable film. It's like, it is like, again, kind of a fatal attraction level uh, erotic thriller, but featuring like kids that were my age. I mean, it's so enjoyable to watch. Um, Also, was... I looked. At, I know that it's listed in the credits, but I didn't see it. I didn't catch it on the screen. Is Leonardo DiCaprio actually in this movie? That's what I was going to say. So I saw that too and was like, what? So I went on Reddit actually, and someone posted the clip of, he, of him being in this movie. And it's literally just a two second clip of some kid running by in a rugby shirt. <laughs> like during one of the school scenes, like there's some, like, and then, you watch the clip, you're like, oh, yeah, I think that's that might be Leonardo DiCaprio. But he has no lines. Oh, my God. He doesn't God. even look forward in the camera. He's just running by in a rugby shirt. So, Amazing. That explains it. Because I'm like, I don't think I, I think I would have noticed him in this movie. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, after watching this, you know, they came out with three sequels to this movie. <laughs> they, were, they were all direct to video. Unnecessary sequels. I love it. I love an unnecessary sequel. Well, and like, I have to, now I have to watch them. They're called, one of them from 1996 is called Poison Ivy 2 Lily. No, you don't have to watch this. What are you talking about? Then there's Poison Ivy, The New Seduction from 1997. Uh. And Poison Ivy, The Secret Society from 2008. 
Oh, so, damn. I know. They carried this shit on for 16 years? Yeah. It's, it, 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 it is like a tale that transcends the generations, apparently. But I, in terms of it being for our theme, I felt like we had to, we had to bring this one. We just had to. It was, a, it was a stunning rewatch. I haven't seen it in so long. The 90s were absolutely obsessed with seduction. <laughs> you could not pick up a movie in the 90s that, what, that somebody wasn't getting seduced. It was a very horny time. Very horny time. Well, sh- Danielle, we're going to make a, a transition to your film right now. Oh, there is no way to easily switch the tide here. (laughs) So we're just going to do it. My movie was released in 2002. It was based on a book by the same name, written by Michael Cunningham, written by David Hare, and directed by Stephen Daldry. My movie is The Hours. He gives me that look to say, your life is so trivial. It only matters if you think it's true. This movie, as I have said in a recent bonus, it's kind of a comfort watch for me. I have no Mm. problem watching it at any point. I don't know why. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) Because this movie is bleak as fuck. (laughs) To put it lightly. Unbelievably bleak. So real quick, though, some background. The director, Stephen Daldry, um, is well-known. He directed Billy Elliot and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Like, he's adapted, he directed a bunch of episodes of The Crown. He's just a very well-known British director. And the book itself is kind of fascinating, primarily for the subject matter, but also the structure. So I'll give a one-sentence synopsis that kind of helps also explain the book. Three, the lives of three women spanning three different eras are brought to their breaking point due to men and the oppression of patriarchal culture. Mm, yes. So the three time frames that we're working with in this film are the 1920s, 1951, and 2001. And... There's a connective thread in this film that is obvious, and then there's a connective thread in this film that I think you kind of don't realize until the end. But essentially, in each of these eras, we're focusing on women who are somehow tied to Virginia Woolf. So in 1923, it is Virginia Woolf, and she's writing the book Mrs. Dalloway. Mrs. Dalloway is the connective thread for all three women. Uh, in 1951, we're with Laura Brown, and she's reading Mrs. Dalloway. And in uh, 2001, we're with Clarissa Vaughn, who's kind of living the book, Mrs. Dalloway. So I think that is a really fascinating narrative device to me. And one thing that I will say, too, is I went back and read a bunch of reviews um, after I rewatched this movie. Most of the critics that I read were men and they all found something really snide and shitty to say about this movie. Like it was boring and it's overwrought and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, huh? How shocking that a movie that focuses on the lives of three different women makes men uncomfortable Yeah, in 2001. <laughs> so that was not surprising to me because everyone I know goddamn loves this movie. Oh my God. 
Danielle. <laughs> I'm I I I'm not I hope I'm not being too much of a generalist when I say this, but I swear to God, every gay man in my life loves this movie. This is like their favorite movie. Absolutely. Well, and this and it makes sense because queerness is absolutely a theme in the film. Definitely. And even though it's not shown directly in Virginia Woolf's timeline, I'm going to talk a little bit about her. In her real life, she did have relationships with lots of women. Yeah. Clarissa is is queer and lives with a woman named Sally. She's had this partner for 10 years, mm-hmm. um, played by the incredible Allison Janney. Yes. And then we also have Laura Brown, who has this scene where she kisses a woman, um, which again, we'll totally get into, but there's this this underlying current of queerness and how it kind of propels these women's lives. So it makes total sense to me that anyone who's interested in seeing queerness represented on screen also likes this movie. Yeah. And Ed, the Ed Harris character is, is gay at some point, you know, his old lover comes back, the Jeff Daniels character. So yeah, it, this is a very yeah. gay movie. So yeah, makes a lot of sense. And it's also, it's really complicated, but in a beautiful way. So again, we have Virginia Woolf in 1923, and she's with her husband, Leonard, who's caring for her and trying to give her space. And she's, you know, under under the care of several doctors. Laura is is five months pregnant, and she also has a son. Um, And she's really unhappy in her marriage and in her life. And she's kind of bad at housekeeping and bad at baking. Like, she's kind of doesn't have an idea for how to live as a, as a competent wife and mother. And then Clarissa is caring for her age-stricken friend, Richard, and she's kind of unattentive to her partner and her daughter, and she's this book editor in New York, and we find out that she's kind of the subject of Richard's very complicated and not well-received novel, because they met when they were students, and he started actually calling her Mrs. Dalloway. Um, Clarissa Dalloway is one of the, is the title character in that book. And there's this beautiful story about how they used to be lovers, and he kind of called her Mrs. Dalloway in this one moment on the beach and it's just beautiful and complicated and cool. Mm. And one of the things that also ties this movie together is the this idea of celebrations and parties. So in the book, Mrs. Dalloway, Clarissa Dalloway is throwing a party. The scope of the book is that we're seeing her whole life play out in one day. So it just focuses on a single day, which again was revolutionary at the time. And the same thing is happening with Clarissa and Laura. So we see Laura's life in one day, we see Clarissa's life in one day, and they're both trying to throw parties. Laura is throwing a birthday party for her husband Dan, who's played by John C. Riley. Laura's played by Julianne Moore, and Clarissa is throwing a party for Richard because he is a poet who has won this very prestigious award, the Carruthers, and he doesn't want to go. Like he's kind of doesn't believe that he's earned it. He doesn't want to go, and she's so stressed out by this party that it's kind of ruining her life. <laughs> so, just a little bit of backstory about Virginia Woolf. And if there are any Virginia Woolf academics out there, I am lightly grazing over this woman's life. There is so much to be read about her. So please don't write in and say, you forgot this. I know I probably forgot a lot of stuff because I'm just going to give a synopsis of her life. Um, Virginia Woolf was born in Kensington in 1882. Again, she's married to Leonard Woolf, who started um, Hogarth Press, which published most of her books. And he kind of started that press in order to keep her 
satisfied in their country life because she really struggled with her mental health. She was institutionalized several times. She tried to commit suicide twice. She, again, was always under the care of doctors. I think that in modern day, like modern day academics have posited that she either had bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, but it was just largely undiagnosed at the time that she was alive. So she never got a full... She never got treatment in a way that actually helped her. Mm. She belonged to the Bloomsbury Group, which was this intellectual gathering of people in London. She had, again, definitely had a lot of affairs with several women, including the the author Vita Sackville-West, who was also published by Hogarth Press. And she was just kind of a stunning author. Um, A lot of people didn't really like her stream of consciousness narrative style, but it really cemented her as like a literary titan after her death. And she also contributed greatly to the feminist movement. Um, She published things like A Room of One's Own and was very outspoken about needing her space and needing her own life. Um, And there's even a scene in the film where she and Leonard are having an argument. And that's the crux of the argument is her saying, like, I get to make my own choices, even if I'm a crazy person. (laughs) Like, she just is really emphatic about the fact that she deserves to have a life that she has a big part in producing, And there was a recent biography that was published in 2019 that I haven't read yet, but I know that it spends a lot of time looking at the childhood abuse that Virginia Woolf um, suffered at the hands of her half-brothers. And I think, again, now we know so much more about childhood abuse, the effects on, you know, the, the developing brain and you know, how that might have contributed to her mental health issues, but it was kind of glossed over in her time. It was like, oh, well. Their half-brothers touched you. And it's like, no, when you read about the incidences and how it really ruined her self-esteem and her sense of self-image, it's pretty devastating. So Mm -hmm. this is also, um, again, fully displayed in the film, but she died in 1941 um, when she was 59 years old. And she drowned herself in the River Ouse, which is so fucking tragic and hardcore. Mm, Yeah. So, yeah. So she is... The connective thread. And again, the connective threads in this film, it's like throwing a party, definitely being a woman who's trying to create space in the patriarchal culture. But there's also this underlying thread of of suicide and people who die by suicide. And I just think it's treated in such a beautiful and true way because suicide is always something that is inexplicable to the people who survive it. Mm. And so I think they do a good job of kind of showing us a glimpse of what it means for each of these characters. So we're definitely, I kind of like, I love Clarissa's story. I think that, again, these are powerhouse actresses in this film. You've got Nicole Kidman um, playing Virginia Woolf. Meryl Streep is Clarissa and Julianne Moore is Laura. And Meryl Streep wears these blue tinted sunglasses that I truly cannot believe made it into the film poster. (laughs) The poster. Let alone on her face. <laughs> but Clarissa is like a fucking busy bee. And most of my baby girl, what is you doing about her is this party is clearly making her unravel. So there's this one part of like we see Virginia Woolf developing the idea and writing Mrs. Dalloway. And she says um, she wants to write about the the whole a woman's whole life in a single day, and in a single day, her whole life. I think what's, again, amazing about the book, amazing about the film, is we really do get that from start to finish with each of the characters. We're just looking at one day of their lives, but we get such a full scope of who they are. So Clarissa's freaking out about this party. 
And we see her go to Richard's house um, and she's caring for him. And again, he's he's kind of he's actively dying of AIDS and he's kind of mean. He's kind of cruel to her. Like he loves her, but he's really pointed about the fact that, you know, he is dying. And he points out to her that she is always giving parties to cover the silence in her own life. And he kind of intimates that, well, he flat out says that he's staying alive for her because he kind of doesn't know what she will do without having him to care for. Mm. And again, they've been friends for so many years that there's just something really beautiful about how they interact. Because again, there's a lot of love there, but he knows she can't confront her own life. And I just, oh, that first scene where they're together is so incredible to me. Like he's he's walking around and he gives this incredible monologue about how he wanted to write about it all. And he it's just to know he's dying and how he's dying and see his regret. And Clarissa kind of knows she can't do anything about it, but listen. But Ed Harris plays Richard, and he's just so fucking beautiful in this scene. And I think their relationship really makes me think more than anything, like, what does it mean to love someone forever? Even if it's not a romantic love, even if it's not, you know, a physical, like, what does it mean to love someone for pretty much your whole life? Because that's what they're exhibiting in this complicated friendship of theirs. But she's like, look, I'll come back for, to get you for the party at 3.30. She's kind of overwhelmed. She's picking up garbage. She's just like always busy. So his comment about her ignoring her own life or kind of staying busy to ignore her own feelings feels very real to me in the mm-hmm. movie. And um, his ex is coming to the party and her her partner, Sally, at one point looks at the seating chart and she's like, why do you always sit me with the exes? Are you trying to tell me something? <laughs> <laughs> But that's also very fraught. Jeff Daniels plays this incredible boyfriend character, this ex-boyfriend character. And they have a tough tough relationship too. And so there's one point where she's making this clam dish and, you know, she's just bustling around and he comes early and he interrupts her, but she kind of receives him. And then as they start talking, she really starts to like cry and sob and like have a breakdown in front of this man who you can, because of the way she's talking to him, you can tell that she's not ultimately very close to anymore, but he's kind of giving her a release, the release that she needs, mm-hmm. um, which I just, I don't know. I love, I don't know what, how, what you thought about that, that scene or Clarissa's life, but I just really love what Meryl Streep was bringing to the table to kind of showcase how people push through, even when things are dire, even when things are hard, even when you don't want to do them. She just has this really introspective look at someone just trying to keep it together for the sake of their friend. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's obviously the larger message of the film is watching women having to live for the people in their life and maybe Mm -hmm. in lieu of what they actually want, right? Because in the same way... The Julianne Moore character is doing that too. She's mm-hmm. baking this cake for her husband's birthday, and so it's it's women who are just sort of like grin and bearing it through these things that they don't necessarily are are wanting to do or connected to. Yeah, you know, I think even in that case of the Virginia Woolf story, you know, you've got sort of that back and forth conversation happening between her and her husband. That's basically like. 
you put me in this place to take care of me and you set things up to where you think that this is what I would want or this is how I would thrive. And that's actually mm-hmm. not the case. So I don't know. That obviously hits me pretty hard as just so, sort of a woman and um, that kind of whole message of what the expectations are. But I think that that, that, that gets perfected the most in the Meryl Streep story because yeah, she's kind of barely keeping it together at all times. And she has that whole breakdown in the kitchen with Lewis yeah. when he when he shows up that is just like, oh, that is it. Like, she is not in a good spot. But she has more space culturally in that moment to be able to express that breakdown. Yes, that that is ultimately what is so cool of of having that be a device in the film, that kind of spanning time and mm-hmm. just seeing like how hard it was for somebody in the Virginia Woolf era to really express that. And then you fast forward it to sort of a, mo- a more modern era where Meryl Streep is allowed to crumble on the floor and freak out. Right. You know? Uh, and that that scene with Virginia Woolf and Leonard having the fight at the train station, the other thing that I love about it is she's basically making a case for them moving back to London. And she says, you know, I, if if the choice is to stay here and live or go to London and die, I choose death. And that itself is poignant. But then later in the film, another character, which I will not spoil, but another character says, it was death, I chose life. So there's just these parallels going on in both of these stories about, you know, she's choosing death to go back to London and be where she wants to be because she knows it won't be good for her mental health. And then this other character is like, well, I know I w- what I was supposed to do, but it was death and I chose to live instead. It's just, it's again, beautiful little moments in this movie that tie these stories together. And Laura, I think, is a good bridge between Clarissa and Virginia Woolf. Because Laura, again, she's kind of struggling all day and she kind of, you know, she's sleeps in and she's taking a nap and she's kind of looking off into the distance. Like she's kind of not present in her own life. And when she tries to be, you can see her making such a great effort. And part of that is that just Julianne Moore is just an absolutely incredible actor that she can translate all of that with just the facial expressions. But mm-hmm. she really is like trying so hard to be good at this task that she feels like she's been given, which is being a wife and mother. And at one point, her neighbor comes over, Kitty, Kitty Barlow, who is played by Tony Collette in a small but powerful role. And Kitty is the opposite of Laura. Like, she's very social and she's good at everything. And they're having this conversation about how their husbands came back from World War II. And Laura says, oh, well, I think, you know, they kind of deserve this. And Kitty's like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, us. Like, they deserved us, I guess, you know, and and... This life and these tracked houses in L.A. and, you know, this life that we have. And Kitty kind of has this conversation with her because she, as it's revealed in the conversation that she can't have kids. And she has this upcoming hospitalization because she has a growth in her uterus. And she says this line where she's, she says, "You, I don't think you can call yourself a woman until you're a mother. And you can see how this lands in Laura. Because Laura's like, well, I am a mother and I don't feel like a woman. Like, I don't feel like my full self. So she is really stuck in this, again, this social expectation of her, these women that she's surrounded by who can do everything perfectly. And she feels like this is this is not my life. Like, I don't want this life. And 
you know, Kitty kind of actively wants what Laura has. Laura's pregnant and she already has a kid. And there's this scene, at the end of that scene, like, you know, Laura's kind of challenging this notion of, just by by living, she's challenging this notion of being a mother makes you a, a full person. And mm. at the end of that scene, she's kind of, Kitty's trying to keep it together and Laura gets up and kind of holds her and caresses her and it turns into a kiss. And it's a kiss that Kitty very quickly dismisses, but it sends Laura into a bit of a spiral. And it's, again, it's just such an elegant approach to looking at women in that time frame who might have had any kind of repressed feelings. And to watch Kitty repressing her feelings about her life, her hospitalization, her possible queerness— and then brushing it off, and then watching Laura confront her repressed feelings and then not being able to brush them off was a really interesting move. And I think, mm. again, it plays out beautifully. But Laura, in touching upon this, this connective threat of suicide, she decides to throw out the cake that didn't come out so great. She's going to remake the cake with her son. And she goes into the bathroom with her purse and loads it up with pills from the medicine cabinet. Later that day, she drops her son off at a babysitter and goes to ho- goes to a hotel uh, where her plan is to die by suicide. And again, there's a really beautiful scene where there's a visual representation of how she feels like she's drowning in her own life, where she's laying on the bed and kind of caressing her pregnant stomach, and the room just fills up with water around her on the bed. One thing to note in... I guess this is a spoiler, but it's not an ultimate spoiler <laughs> of the end of the film. But Richie, her son, is actually Richard, the poet. And from the first time I saw this movie, that was not a surprise to me because the eagle-eyed viewer will notice the bathrobe that Richard is wearing in his apartment matches the bedroom set from the 1950s that Richie has. Mm. It's like rockets and moons and stuff. And it's his bedspread, his curtains, and then he's wearing the bathrobe. And I was like, oh. And I remember saying that to a friend of mine when I saw the film. Like, oh, well, I knew that was him because of that. She's like, how did you notice that? <laughs> like, I can't help it. Like, look at everything. It's such a lush movie. Um, yeah, that is actually an incredible thing to notice. I did not notice that. The only thing that really, when I was watching it again, and the, actually the couple times I've seen it, I uh, I'm always stunned by how they, they did great casting because that kid yeah. kind of looks like yeah. Ed Harris, essentially. He's got those and eyes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and again, this film was a massive success, like huge earner. Came out around Christmas time in, in 2001, or sorry, 2002. And um, it was just, it won an, a, a, Nicole Kidman won her first Academy Award from this film. And I will say, it has been addressed a lot. She wears a prosthetic nose in this film and still does not look anything like Virginia Woolf, but it's fine. To me, it's fine. It's like, okay, she plays the character so well that I was fine with it. It was. It's not an offensive prosthetic. It just doesn't make her look like Virginia Woolf at all. <laughs> and am I wrong in that they just, the makeup job on the nose isn't great? Yeah. It's, there's not a lot of contouring, not a lot of blending. Yeah, it feels like, I mean, and maybe it's because we watch everything in such great quality now, like in this yeah. hyper HD quality that I'm like, yo, they could have like powdered that a bit better. Like, may, she, like they could have matched her skin tone. Just go to Sephora and get like one of those 
skin match things you know go to go to go to fenty where there's lots of lots of different shades for different skin tones i'm like because that nose looks a lot grayer yes. than the rest of the skin on her face oh completely Same. and you know me i don't know shit about fuck when it comes to makeup and even i knew i'm like oh you need a blending brush yeah you need one of those those wedges you need to fucking contour that shit up i don't know all i know about makeup is from watching real housewives and watching them contour their fucking shit to high heaven. It's, it wasn't distracting enough to where I didn't like the movie, obviously, but there was moments of the film where I was like, yo, that nose needs a little bit, a little bit of powder. A little bit more. Some, some more on there. Something. (laughs) Keep doing it. Keep going. You, you think you need less? Keep going. Just try another couple of <laughs> couple of layers. Yeah. But it's like, but yeah, that detail of the, of the bathrobe, and then you're kind of once you know that Richie is the little kid, you're understanding that his artistic life is fueled by such trauma of this suicidal mother, and um, you know the story does. You do learn eventually the full story of Laura and Richie. Um, but there's just such a, a delicate balance of how, I, again, I think the movie does a, a great job of showing the delicate balance of legacy and inheritance, but like emotional inheritance, like what Richie inherited from his mother and what Clarissa inherited from this brief but clearly effective relationship that she had with Richard and what Virginia Woolf inherits from, you know, living in a society with her sister, Vanessa, who was a a great painter in her own right, um, where she's not able to kind of even talk to the people who are working in her house. And just there's just a a real emotional tie, along with the more obvious ties of how these stories fit together. There's a real emotional thread in this film that I just find to be very effective and it's mm. a beautiful piece of storytelling. The soundtrack by Philip Glass is also something that a lot of critics were like, we fucking hate this. I fucking love it. I think it's eerie and it's creepy and it's emotional and it doesn't take away from it. It enhances some of the scenes. It doesn't take away, but it also ties it together. So I, I just, I love the fucking soundtrack, but. Yeah. Fuck them dudes, by the way. Can I just say that? <laughs> fuck all these, fuck these dudes. The reviews were so snarky for a film that, again, went on to be wildly entertaining and wildly popular. Dude, let me just tell you, they hate our secret knowledge, okay? Thank you. This movie is like the VH1 Divas Live of movies. There is, it is literally like (laughs) wall-to-wall fucking awesome women. I mean, you didn't even talk about fucking Margot Martindale, who's in the movie for like five minutes. I love... Allison Janney so much. Her, like, power lesbian Ugh. character, so good. I'm Miranda like, Richardson. Miranda Richardson. I mean, even Claire, Claire Danes. Danes. <laughs> She's playing, like, a college daughter-type character. She's not even in it a lot, but she, every woman in this movie is a fucking G. Yep. And any guy that has a problem with this movie and needs to review it negatively in that way doesn't get it and they won't get it no this this movie is to lilith fair what the critics are to woodstock 99 (laughs) oh 
Oh shit. Oh you've shit. Got, <laughs> you've got Woodstock 99 trying to weigh in on goddamn Lilith Fair. And it ain't it ain't happening. And I think it's yeah. it's beautiful that this movie is able to look so specifically at the lives of women across the decades to see how far we've come, but also how much of the same shit still affects us. Definitely. Especially in a caretaker role, which hit me harder this time than the other 900 times I've watched the movie. Um, I'm sure. Because it's just the caretaking aspect of it and what it means, like, especially with Clarissa and, and Laura, like kind of breaking down under the weight of having to be so present for somebody else. Mm-hmm. So I love it. The ending, oh God, the ending kills me. They use Virginia Woolf's actual letter, her last letter to Leonard in the film, um, but then Michael Cunningham as this beautiful beat at the end uh, that wasn't present in her real letter, but it's just so fucking beautiful. It makes me cry. It's beautiful. Yeah. This movie is weirdly life-affirming, very emotional, makes me cry, makes me want to live and write it all, just like Richard says. Well, thank you for making me watch it again. It's it's such a good movie. Thanks. And you you I, looked it up and <laughs> you posted the funniest fucking <laughs> description of this movie from Wikipedia. Um, I, yeah, I post. I, it's so funny because you know it just was like Google and stuff when I was watching the film and. The way that it's this movie is described on Wikipedia is so fucking funny. It says, this is the opening sentence for the hours on Wikipedia. It says, the hours is a 2002 British American period semi-fictionalized biographical psychological drama anthology film. Oh my God! Oh god. I was like, that shit is doing the most. <laughs> and it's inviting it's saying a lot, but it is inviting no one into the party. <laughs> I do not know how to watch this movie if that's the description I'm reading. I was I'm like, like Wait. Descri- describe it. That's what it is. That is, it, it is exactly what that is. Look, you're not wrong, but also what are you saying? <laughs> <I know. laughs> Can we break this down into a more simplistic version? But I'm so glad that you watched it again. And I would recommend it for a comfort rewatch, maybe for some of (laughs) y'all. If you are as bleak minded as me. Oh, my God. I expect nothing else from you. For this to be a comfort (laughs) movie. Come on. It's it's like two and a half hours long. It's it's a long, bleak movie. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Uh, well, well, next week we're back with another theme. Oh we my are. god! Next week's theme is all you. You gotta tell them what the movies are. Yeah. Well, before I do that, I just want to let everybody know if you want to email us, we are at asawatchedpod at gmail dot com. Send us questions for bonus episodes, but we also have a PO box if you want to send us handwritten letters. Um, you can find the address on our link tree on Instagram. Yes, and don't forget, you can now leave us a voicemail to play on the show if you don't want to send us an email or a letter. Uh, All you have to do is record a voice memo on your phone and email it to I saw what you did pod at 
Gmail, please make it 60 seconds or less and please record it in a quiet space. A hundred percent. Also, find us on socials. Like I said, I saw a pod on Instagram and Twitter. We also have merch. Go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right Shop to find it. And don't forget our bonus episodes are coming out all the time. We've got new bonus episodes on the third Thursday of every month. And our old bonus episodes are trickling out onto the main feed every couple of weeks on Wednesdays. That is right. All right. All right. Hit them with it. Hit them with these films for next week. <laughs> okay. The films you need to watch for next week's episode are Wild at Heart from 1990 and to live and die in LA from 1986. <laughs> Dude, I'm so psyched to watch these. Pro- probably the polar opposite of the hours in terms of <laughs> <laughs> just for all those men that hate the hours, you're really gonna love next week. We got one for you next week, critics of the hours. <laughs> <gasps> oh shit oh, well Daniel so much fun as always a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you thanks for giving me thanks for giving me space you for, to take a shit to talk about the hours <laughs> just a consummate <laughs> professional in that way and a dear friend dude I love you of course I love you too see you next Bye. time This has been an Exactly Right production, produced by Casey O'Brien. Episode mixing and theme music by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.